Every single human being is marked by an overwhelming hunger at the deepest level of who they are. It's both a hunger that can be and that can never be satisfied. This message is about how Jesus offers himself as the satisfaction of our soul's hunger and the object of our soul's deepest desire. I shared with you before the quote from Saul Bellow's book, Henderson, the Rain King, that so haunted me when I first came across it as an atheist in high school. The book is about a man who is profoundly restless and dissatisfied with life and wanting more. And the way that his hunger surfaces in his life is through this resounding, relentless, uh, rising up within him of desire in the form of the phrase, I want There was a disturbance in my heart, a voice that spoke there and said, I want. It happened constantly. And when I tried to suppress it, it got even stronger. It only said one thing, I want, I want. And I would ask, what do you want? But this is all it would ever tell me. It never said a thing except, I want. No purchases, no matter how expensive, would lessen it. And then I would say, come on, tell me, what's the complaint? But the demand came louder. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And I would cry, begging at last, tell me then, tell me what you want. At the point when I read this book, it really jarred me because it made me slow down and listen to my own interior in a way that I never had before that moment. And when I stopped and listened, I realized that that same resounding longing was rising up inside of me, echoing way down in my own soul. Do you recognize something similar inside of you? Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, says that that hunger is universal among human beings. You've heard me share this quote as well. I think it's such a powerful one. He writes, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives. We are not easeful people who occasionally get restless. The reverse is true. We are congenitally diseased, only experiencing occasional peace. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion, lies the naming and analyzing this desire. Whatever the expression, everyone is ultimately talking about the same thing, an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that cannot be tamed, an all-embracing ache that lies at the center of the human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything else. This dis-ease is universal. Do you recognize an unmet hunger in you? What is the name that you would put on that hunger? And what is the thing that you believe that your heart hungers for? Rollheiser wraps up his comments with this absolutely remarkable and astute comment. He says, spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that hunger. It's an observation that takes us straight to the passage that we are looking at this morning. As you may remember, we're in a sermon series called Unfolding Jesus, in which we're walking through the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel and looking at 
Jesus' self-revelatory expressions, the places where he himself tells us who he is, why he's come, and what he is seeking to accomplish. Last Sunday, we looked at chapter 5, and those of you who are here will remember that we actually walked through the entire chapter, beginning to end. We put on our Sherlock hats, and we went through and looked at clues along the way, and then fit all of the pieces together into a message at the end. But this time, as we come to chapter 6, I'm going to do just the opposite. I'm really just going to focus in on one phrase in this entire chapter, and then move in and out of the rest of the chapter to help us understand what that phrase means. I do want to say there are a bunch of awesome passages in John chapter 6, and, I, and we're not going to be able to focus on many of them. So I do hope that you'll take some time at another point to just read through the whole chapter and do some homework on your own. So here's the part of the chapter that I want to zoom in on. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 34, the people say, Jesus, give us this bread that you are talking about. And we're going to learn more about what the context of that comment is in And this is Jesus' reply. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. So specifically, I want to focus in on this amazing saying from Jesus, where he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 35. In that short declaration, Jesus pulls together in a short and and incredibly provocative claim the three main themes that define this whole mysterious chapter. I am. Who is it that Jesus uniquely claims to be? The bread. How are we to understand that metaphor? What is he talking about? Of life. What is the sort of life that Jesus offers us? So we'll be looking at each of those words in turn, and then one more word that I think is incredibly helpful in bringing the significance of this passage home to us. We'll start with the person who is making this claim. Jesus of Nazareth says, I am. Who was Jesus? He was a carpenter turned preacher who was turning the region upside down because of his teaching and his miracles. Everywhere he goes, he is met with both a warm welcome from some and a a chilly hostility from others. Why? Because he says such amazing and such preposterous things at the same time. He teaches a way of love and peace that is utterly original and compelling and beautiful. Love your enemy, turn the other cheek, take the the beam out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. Be pure of heart. And then he says such maddening things like this. Chapter 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. In response to which, in John chapter 6, verse 41, we're told that people begin to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, well, now wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and his mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? Or he makes astounding claims like this one in John chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has ever seen the father. Only I, who was sent from God, have seen him. Even the the three times repeated phrase that we are looking at as we walk through this passage, I am the bread of life. 
We saw it once in, in 635, we see it again in 648, and then again in 651. Because of the way he framed this, it sounds like a blatant claim that he himself is God. In Exodus, God tells Moses that his name is I am. And now Jesus uses that same phrase in the same structure to describe who he is. So in response to, to outlandish claims like this and others that we'll be looking at in a moment, we are told in, in, in John 6, 60, that even many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? And a short time later, after more of these comments were told in 666, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Now, most people, when they read John chapter 6, assume that the disciples reject Jesus because they can't understand at all what he's talking about. I don't think that that's the case. By speaking in metaphors, as we'll explore in a little bit, Jesus is speaking in a way that was very familiar to the Jewish people. They don't reject Jesus because they can't understand what he's saying. They reject Jesus because they know pretty well what he's saying. But what he is saying, this claim that he is equal to God and that he is somehow the, the source of eternal life, it's too mind-boggling for them to take in. So here before them is a man who claims that before he lived on earth, he lived in the presence of God, the Father in heaven eternally, and that he is sent from God to to meet humanity's deepest need, what in the world do we do with that? Well, we either fall on our knees or we pick up stones. We can't put him in some third category of a wise religious teacher and an all-around nice guy and, and sidestep these divine claims that he is making about himself. He doesn't leave that option open to us. Jesus says, I am the bread. How do we understand that? He's obviously not the Pillsbury Doughboy. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, in Hebrew culture, much more than in Greek and in Roman culture, it was common to speak the truth using metaphors, word pictures that communicate truth, but in a much more imaginative and powerful way. The Lord is my shepherd, my rock, my fortress. He carries me on eagle's wings, in his arms, between his shoulders. Metaphors speak to the mind and to the heart at the same time. Now, in order for us to understand why Jesus is using this expression, that he is the bread in this context, we have to, to look at the two stories that are upstream from this one, to help us understand what he is saying when he uses this bread metaphor. The first one happened earlier in John chapter 6, when Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people out in the remote regions northeast of the Sea of Galilee, beginning in verse 5. John soon, or Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. So turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he, had, he already knew exactly what he was going to do. And Philip replied, I have no idea. Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, there's this young boy up here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered 5,000 people. And then Jesus took those loaves, he gave thanks to God, and he distributed them to the people. 
And afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. So that's one event that's upstream that happened just the day before these comments. The other event happened about 1,500 years further upstream. It's the story of God miraculously feeding his people in another wilderness area that they walked through. We find the story in Exodus chapter 16. Here's a summary of what goes on in that chapter. We're told that about 40 days into a journey through the desert that will end up lasting about 40 years, that the whole community came to Moses grumbling and complaining. They came to him and said, what did you do? Bring us out here in the desert to die? Don't you realize that we had all the food and meat that we could ever eat back in Egypt? As if. But you brought us out here in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, Mana, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you all to eat. And the people of Israel called the bread manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? It was white like coriander seed and taste, tasted like wafers made with honey. Sounds a little bit like lumbus bread for those of you who are Tolkien fans. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was promised to them. So these two events frame in the conversation that happens next, the day after this miraculous meal, when the crowds finally track Jesus down. Beginning in verse 25, they found him on the other side of the lake and they asked, well, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you. Sort of the, the Jesus as food truck approach to spirituality. Not because you understood the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of God or Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And they answered, Well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? They'd just seen him feed him miraculously the day before. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness, and the scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Can you imagine being there and hearing Jesus make that claim, hearing those words for the very first time? So let's get clear about what Jesus is saying. First, he makes a stark distinction between those who come to Jesus for what he gives them and those who come to Jesus because they realize he himself is what they ultimately hunger for. 
We live in a consumer culture, and that consumeristic way of thinking has bled its way into every part, every corner of our culture, including the church. Here I am with my own unique preferences and needs and desires. I'll shop around and I will arrange a meal of my own liking, one that I think will satisfy my unique tastes and preferences. Jesus rejects this Jesus as a means to other ends way of thinking. Their deepest hunger will not be met by something that he gives them. He himself is the end of their longing, the end of their search. He himself is the thing for which they hunger. Verse 25, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. What they say about me. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Which brings us to the primary meaning of this bread metaphor. What was the significance of bread in ancient culture? Well, for us, bread is just kind of a, a, a nice side note. It's an accent touch on a meal that's primarily made up of the other four basic food groups. Fruits, vegetables, protein, dairy. And there alongside them is a nice chunk of fresh baked golden brown, artisan, whole grain bread. But for people in the ancient world, bread was life. It was the staple food in their diet, and they ate it with every meal. Sometimes it was their meal. In fact, bread and food were synonymous in the ancient world. Give us today our daily food. Give us our daily bread. Without bread, you don't go from away from a meal a little less satisfied Bread is your meal. Without bread, you die. Which brings us to the other key word in this saying of Jesus, the final one. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is saying, I am the thing that you cannot live without. Yes, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer up so that the world may live, is my flesh. Jesus talking about himself as, as bread that we eat sounds so strange to us but it's really just an extension of the word picture that he has already begun as he talks about himself as bread. Think about this. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door, and whoever enters through me will be saved. The metaphor of a door refers to something that, that gives you access to something else. But to gain that access, you have to open the door and go through it. So continuing that metaphor, Jesus says, you must enter through me in order to gain that access. In other words, you need to believe in me and I will give you access to all that God has for you. So here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the metaphor of bread refers to something that holds all that is necessary for life. But to receive those life-giving nutrients, you have to eat it. You have to receive the bread. So continuing the metaphor, Jesus says, you must eat my flesh in order to receive the life that I offer. In other words, you need to believe in me and I will give you the spiritual life that you hunger for. 
Verse 40, it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. So what is this eternal life that Jesus offers us? What is the life that he holds out to us? Well, we've already seen in verse 51 that Jesus promises that anyone who eats this bread will live forever. But that's not the heart of what eternal life is. Eternal life is about something so much more than mere unending days. That's really just one part of it. And and in a sense, it is the least important part of this biblical idea of eternal life. Three other dimensions to eternal life are what make those unending days so astonishing and so amazing and so wonderful. First of all, the eternal life that Jesus offers is us experiencing our souls being brought from death to life as God awakens us to himself and to the whole spiritual realm. Apart from Christ, we will only experience spiritual death and separation from God. But Jesus awakens us to to our spiritual life and awakens us to God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to walk. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we are saved. Second, the eternal life that Jesus offers us is us entering into an eternal relationship with God. The Father, through God the Son, he makes it possible for us to know him and to enjoy him and delight in him and to walk through life with him. John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus prays about his followers, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then third, on top of that, the eternal life that Jesus offers us is is us enjoying the fullness of life that God intended all along for us as human beings, but that can only be found in Christ. It is only in Christ that God's purposes for our life finds its fulfillment, its fulfillment. Listen to these different translations of John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I want them to have it abundantly, to have it in the fullest possible way. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. There's simply no way of comparing the life that is ours in Christ with whatever counterfeit version of life is to be found outside of him. And all of this is ours the moment we eat the bread that is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat this bread. So I want to spend the the last part of the message just talking about one other key word in this passage. You probably have already noticed it. It's one It's the word that that I believe helps us bring home the significance and meaning of this passage for us today. It's the word hunger. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. As we said when we began, all of us as human beings are driven by a huge, insatiable hunger. Our spiritual life, Rollheiser says, is what we do with that hunger. And the one thing we all try to do in response to our hunger is to try to fill it. And our world is like a never-ending taste of Tippecanoe. Here, try this. Here, sample this. Here, try some of this. Here, this is what you're looking for. Here, you can't do without this. And we go through the world eating. 
carrying our hunger out into the world and seeking to satisfy it everywhere we go with everything that we do. As I was doing research for this message, I came across a wonderful world, a word from the, the country of Georgia. It's the world Shamomachama. And it means that you have eaten until you are full, but you can't stop eating. That's what happens when we are eating lots of food, but it's food that doesn't really satisfy us. Food that doesn't, doesn't really have what is necessary to give us life. You may be aware of this. Food scientists work hard in their labs to come up with junk foods that are packed with just the right combination of sugar, salt, and fat so that it, they explode with flavor in our mouths. They call it, these lab scientists call that the bliss point. Food that reaches the bliss point, you can't stop eating. Even though what you're eating isn't good for you. Even though it isn't giving you life. So we, think about this, our, our culture is like a massive supermarket and we are walking up and down the aisles and its shelves are stocked with nothing but junk food. Each one offering a bliss point that temporarily satisfies us but isn't capable of bringing us life. The stock market, research results, sports achievements, video games, porn, alcohol, shopping outlets, Netflix, Amazon, TikTok, romance novels, political blogs. I mean, you can go on and on. As many versions of junk food as there are taste buds. We are stuffed full and we are starving at the same time as human beings. Shimoma Chama. According to Ann Voskamp, our fall was and has always been and always will be that we aren't satisfied in God and what he gives. We hunger for something more and something other. And then along comes Jesus, the bread of life that has come down from heaven, who says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, believe in me, because in me alone is life. If you eat this bread, you will never be hungry again. And those of you who are followers of Christ, you know that to be true. But you also know, if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, that there is a paradox about hunger when it comes to the spiritual life. On the one hand, what Jesus is saying is absolutely true. There is nowhere else that we can find the eternal life that Jesus offers. The eternal life for which we were made. And once we eat the bread that is Jesus, we will never need any other kind of spiritual sustenance again. He is all we need. We will never hunger again. Psalm 63 verse 5, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And yet, and yet, when we give our hearts to Jesus, something fascinating happens. At the very same time that our deepest hunger is met in Jesus, our hunger for him begins to grow. In his journal, David Brainerd, the missionary from the 1600s, 1700s, wrote, Of late, God has been pleased to keep my soul hungry almost continually, so that I have been filled with a pleasing pain when I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more insatiable. The more we have of him, the more we want of him. 
When we worship him or serve him, he gives us himself and we are satisfied. We are fulfilled. And at the very same time, he has only whet our appetite for more of him. We are satiofame. I looked all over the place for the right word and couldn't find one, so I made one up. It's a word that combines the Italian words for full and hungry, for satisfied and famished. Satiofame. Once we come to Christ, our spiritual life is what we do with that continued and growing hunger for God. We can deaden that hunger. We can ignore it. We can snack on other things. We can look to something short of God to be enough for us, but it never is. I wrote this poem thinking about how often I am guilty of this, even as one who has found such profound satisfaction in Christ. Before me spreads a feast, a feast beyond all telling out, all tallying up, all taking in a banquet board, bending beneath a bulging bounty of bread, a spread of meat and drink from the far end of the table to its head. And I, and I am enamored of the crumbs that lie beneath instead. We can look to something short of God to satisfy our hunger. Or we can let that hunger lead us into a deeper life with Jesus. As one person put it, hunger is an escort to the deeper things of God. Hunger for God is the quality that sets apart every one of the great saints through the ages. Augustine, Teresa, Julian, John of the Cross, John Donne, George Herbert, and on and on. A hunger for God that led them into a deeper life of prayer and worship and solitude and silence and relinquishment. I want that hunger. What about you? I want that hunger for you too. May God make us satiofame. May he give us the paired and paradoxical graces of finding ourselves deeply and fully satisfied in Christ and finding ourselves endlessly hungering for more of God at exactly the same time. Would you pray with me? Lord, we respond with Peter. In a world that is a marketplace offering up counterfeit bread, we look to you and say, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Satisfy our souls with your love, Lord.